Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 98 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, happiest man alive, I think. <laughs> and joining us tonight, it's Vinegar Syndrome's Brad Henderson. Brad, hello. How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me on. Uh, hey, thanks for doing this. And uh, thanks for bringing Boarding House to the table. <laughs> uh, you, you, you're welcome, or I'm sorry. It's It, it kind of goes either way with this one, it seems. Yeah, neither of us had heard of this uh, before you picked it. Now, it's very, very common for me to have not heard of or have not seen a film that I guess chosen for this. Uh, less so for you, Andy. Yeah, yeah, this was a first watch for me. Uh, I now know how it feels to be you, Mitch. And if being you means that I'm exposed to new experiences and new gems, then I've got to be honest, Mitch, being you is the way to go because I had an absolute blast with this film. This has been my last two years. Brad, now you came at us with a few choices when we reached out to you to do this. Why was Boarding House on the list for you? I think, uh, you know, because the way you pitched the idea for the show, I always look at that as an opportunity to really kind of dive into something that I would con- that I would think that no one else would pick. That being one, on any show, really, I always try to pick something that I think that would be unique to turn people on. Because, I, I mean, I like talking about films that a lot of people have seen. I've done it many times. I mean, we release films that countless people have seen and loved, but there's a lot more joy into having someone watch something for the first time because you kind of live vicariously through them when you hear about it or anything like that. So even if they dislike it, you kind of get to enjoy reliving your moment watching it again inside and then also talking through it with somebody, whether they didn't like it or not. So I'm always happy when people don't like something either, because then I can kind of be on the more defensive side rather than the offensive side championing the film even more. But um, the reason why Boarding House, per se, is that I'm a big lover of shot-on-video horror films um, Mm -hmm. because there's such a DIY thing with those in general. And obviously, a a lot of these films, Boarding House excluded in this conversation, but as far as I know, Boarding House is the only shot-on-video movie ever to be screened theatrically during its initial release. Everything else has been just on direct-to-video. Boarding House is also one of the first, I believe it is the first, shot-on-video horror film as well. So it has done so much in its life, even though it's very unheard of, in the shot-on-video world and horror world uh, in general, it has a couple things where it really is prominent in the first time it's ever done something. So, I mean, a lot of people think Blood Cult is like one of the very first shot-on-video films, or shot-on-video horror films is technically like the first shot on video horror film that was released in video stores like direct to video. Yep. So mm-hmm. uh, this film was actually blown up to 35 millimeter and screened theatrically uh, like 1983. That's unheard of for something like this. And also John Wintergate, who stars in the film, who directed it, 
who did the music, also edited the film. Uh, he did the cinematography. He loves the movie, you know, and I love the aspect a lot with shot on video films is that there's so much truth behind it and so much work from the people behind the scenes that it feels like I can connect to them because it's literally like kids making movies, it seems. Because they're grabbing a camcorder, they're setting it up, and they're making this. It looks shitty, uh, you know, basically <laughs> bad lighting, bad, you know, bad special effects. I mean, they're really doing this next to nothing. Boarding House yeah. had a little bit more of a budget, but again, it just it looks the same. It has that same aesthetic. So picking it was just something that I I've always really loved the movie. Again, when it was re- released theatrically, it totally bombed. It bombed on VHS. It's such a disjointed movie, and there's a story behind why it is like that. So it just there's just so much to talk about with, with this one in general, and I feel, again, it's just not talked about enough, even if it is weird as fuck. <laughs> um, I mean, I wondered why I had never heard of it. I mean, I was a big video store kid. I, used to, I mean, I've talked about that loads of times on this show about how much time I spent just browsing and browsing video shop shelves for things that I was too young to get my hands on at the time and I I was trying to think this wasn't even one that I could even remember and pass in but um, a little bit of research uh, shows that it was refused a UK video certificate correct yeah yeah it was uh, it was refused and um, it's like 85 I think it was trying to get released or something like that in the UK well that would have been run about the video na- the video nasty stuff would still have been in full swing by then yeah so uh, with a lot of these films mainly with the shot on video films is that they were self-released by these companies so they didn't have an agent or an international person to take the yeah. film to you know france and australia and sell it to all these video vendors it's literally just stuff that was bootlegged you know because mm-hmm. these people uh, mainly like a lot of these guys they would make the movie themselves they would distribute it themselves make the tapes sell it to video stores nearby uh, basically surrounding states of their state alone and that's it and then eventually it got mm. out by being copied and copied and copied but uh, uh with boarding house i mean he had a decent distribution deal but again the the film didn't really do very well because um i i don't know if one of you is going to be really excited about this the other may not be but the film was originally two hours and 38 minutes long <laughs> I saw, I saw, I saw that. this. Yeah, yeah. So, so they they basically uh, in you know it was written in the late seventies by uh, Calla Sue and and John Wintergate, their husband and wife. They star in the movie together. She plays Victoria. Um, okay. they, they they wrote this movie in the late seventies. They were inspired by other movies. Uh, they were in a few bands, uh, but they had you know basically they were raising a family, so they were just thinking about other things to do. And they were inspired to make a movie, and they, and they did, and they really wanted to make a horror comedy so they did it they made a two hour and 38 minute horror comedy and basically they were told i mean one no one's gonna watch two hour and 38 minute horror comedy that's shot on video so they edited the film down to what you've seen is like 134 minutes or whatever or not 134 minutes an hour and 34 minutes yeah yeah yeah. so a long story short over an hour is cut from the film and that's the reason why the film's so disjointed, because there's elements of comedy still trickled in. A lot of people just think it's bad, but it's literally them trying, I mean, it is bad, but they're trying to make uh, a comedy behind it. So there is this longer cut of the movie that exists, and it's 
it's not, I wouldn't say it was funny, but it is still enjoyable. It's just, it really is kind of a chore for a lot of people to get through. You really uh-huh. have to have a stomach for these types of things and enjoy kind of the, <laughs> the hilarity and sincerity behind it. Because obviously, you know, with the directors or the, you know, John Wintergate and his wife, they understand what they made. You know, they're, they're very proud of what they've done, uh, but they do enjoy kind of this cult aspect that the film has created underground by itself. I mean, it was us fans that championed these movies and then made them quote-unquote cult classics or, you know, sought after today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brad. Yes. There is a possibility that people will be listening to this episode without having seen this film. We will be letting people know how they can access it. But it's possible that some people won't heed our advice. So we do make everyone who comes on the show do one thing, which we're going to get you to do as well. Andy, do we have 30 seconds on the clock? Yes, we do, much. yes. Brad, for the benefit of anyone who has not seen Boarding House, I'm going to count you in and we're going to ask you if you are ready to give us your best 30-second synopsis of this film. How do you feel? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you, sound, you, you sound confident. Uh, 30 you. seconds disappears fast. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, three, two, one. Go. A ridiculous guy that is obsessed with science <laughs> and theories and whatnot uh, rents a house, uh, basically gets women to come in the house with him. To He will pay them. Uh, it's occupied by a uh, quote-unquote ghost that throws pies in faces and yogurt, <laughs> has people have sex, kills a cat, has horror vision, um, which you will see. That should turn you on right there. Time. Yeah. There you go. Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, I think that I think that we should jump right into this and talk about horror vision. Yes, uh, <laughs> horror vision. It's a. It's one of the very first films to to you. Well, I guess it's the only film to use horror vision. But I mean, it really is kind of a thing from you know the fifties and sixties yeah, for yeah. Uh, you know when they would screen films in theaters, things would come out and scare people. Just kind of that trope. But I think the sound and the glove, like, expanding, you know, with the hand, I think is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So it really does add this other charm to the film. Yeah, I thought so. And I mean, like, my knowledge of this kind of thing is not that great, but it did strike me as a total kind of product of another time when it's like, oh, you have a nervous disposition, may want to look away when you see this or you hear this sound. Yeah, it was those disclaimers, like, in drive-ins and stuff and those bumpers that, you know... Yeah. Yeah, or even like trailers would do it. They would just say it's only a movie. It's only a movie. You know, keep telling. That's literally what it would just repeat over and over. It just took that aspect, but added it to this shot on video world <laughs> of this weird ass fucking movie. <laughs> and it really isn't that even that gory or for the faint of heart, even for its time, I don't think. Uh, but that's mainly because everything's so low budget. You really can't see what's going on half the time anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's that William Castle thing. Because he used to come out like at the start of his films and introduce his films and stuff, so it's it's really just that. But like you say, done in a, a shoestring. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly kind of like the William Castle thing. Like I said, it adds adds another level of charm to the film and it just makes it a little bit kookier and wackier. But the film, I, I will say that uh, for for people that do have all region players. The film is available on DVD over here, as as well as the director's cut of the film, which is the two-hour and 38-minute version. Oh, I, I have to see that. It really is a stacked DVD. I, obviously, this is no Blu-ray because they can't really upgrade uh, sure. yeah. <laughs> video. But it is packed full of interviews and stuff like that. And it really is such a good staple for shot and video horror because the, the people behind it uh, really champion it the whole entire time. You know, they weren't 
upset that the film was received poorly because it's so jumbled and you know obviously more more hands were in the pot for them to cut so much out and they didn't really get to release their whole entire vision mm-hmm. but you know they they're really very very proud of it which i can respect even more uh more so because they know how to sit back and laugh at it even if it is supposed Whoa. to be played a straight horror film with all these cuts and stuff but there's just still so much silliness in the film that it, 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 it you can't really even cut that part out so it's available on Amazon for eighteen pounds seventy three. So I've just bought that. <laughs> is it the slasher the slasher video version? It is, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a it's a wild movie for sure. So I, I hope many people can enjoy it, and this turns people onto the shot and video world because there's uh, there's countless films from all over, you know, because basically the idea, which is funny enough, I'll connect Star Wars to this movie <laughs> go on is that uh john wintergate heard from a friend that george lucas was experimenting with shot on video because he thought that was the wave of the future so george lucas started experimenting and this was heard about and so they were like oh well that's the wave of the future let's do it so that's kind of where they got the idea to shoot on video because they had the money to shoot on film because obviously it cost them like 30 grand to blow it up on 35 and and do it so they had the money these people were successful beforehand it's just that they took that as that was the direction that movies may have been going mm-hmm. uh, luckily they didn't but we did get a wave <laughs> of amazing movies that way potentially like Wintergate was inspired by what Lucas said and kind of created this. And I don't know. I, I don't think George Lucas would have ever done it, <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's kind of wild that that's kind of where they got the idea from. Yeah. I really like the way this starts. I really like the way the film opens uh, after a opening credit sequence that feels long. As long. I would say. <laughs> The kind of police file thing when you see the kind of text on the screen and what looks like a kind of very old like DOS operating system with a voiceover <laughs> kind of set in the scene with the history of the house. I think this is really cool. I really like the way this works. It's got a great soundtrack too. Soundtrack's excellent. The soundtrack's excellent. It's obviously done by, I mean, the, even the voiceover's done by John Wintergate, star of the movie. So they had this band called 33 and a Third. They were in and then they had a couple other bands after that. So they did the entire soundtrack themselves. The soundtrack's probably the best part as far as, like, well done. The soundtrack's yeah. probably the best thing for the movie. But it really does kind of get you in this mood. But once the movie starts, it's like, what actually is happening? (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you're trying to analyze the movie, you're doing that. But if you're just having fun and like having some drinks and some friends over, I've screened this for multiple people and I still hear about it. (laughs) So it was it was funny because I just actually mentioned to my friends uh, that we watched it. I showed them maybe about a year and a half ago, two years ago. They still talk about it. I I was just saying, hey, guys, talking about Boarding House today. And he said, I thought the name of the movie was Boring House. And I thought that was kind of funny. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's I do show it to quite a few people just because it really it's different. It really is. You'll never see anything like it. That's certainly true. That's certainly true. And it just it really like I say, I'm not going to say the story again. It just has this really neat story behind it with some filmmakers that really cherish their product so i can respect that absolutely quick potted history of the hoffman house before we see it now 1972 we have the nobel prize winners don hoffman and unnamed wife uh both found dead experts in telekinesis (laughs) and uh months later they're the only witness 13 year old child testifies about an apparent double suicide 
Yeah. Uh, child's then institutionalized after a breakdown two months later. At this point, we get presumably those two deaths happening yep. in front of us. And they're both spectacular in their own ways. I think that the drowning in the swimming pool is hilarious, but the trash compactor death is amazing. Garbage disposal. Yes, garbage disposal. There really is a lot of good death in the movie. It doesn't really... There's a lot of like meandering around, but like <laughs> the eye stuff coming out, like somebody... I think like two or three people lose their eyeballs in this movie. Um, their eyeballs get gouged out. It's really wild. And I'm trying not to, because so, sometimes when I talk about the film, I think about the two hour and 38 minute version. <laughs> and sometimes I talk about scenes in that one uh, versus the, you know, version that most people are familiar with if they've seen it. But um, yeah, there's some really gnarly special effects and like some gross stuff in this movie. It's quite something. What I will say is, like, even this garbage disposal scene, you, you're not really seeing anything, but it's handled in such a way that it, it feels thoroughly unpleasant. Yeah, there, there's a sense that it makes you uncomfortable. Like, I remember, because I saw this at a very young age, too. Honestly, I think I blocked the movie out for a little while after I initially saw it when I was probably, like, I don't know, like, nine or ten. I don't remember. But it was that pig face in the shower. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That fucking fucked me up. I, I, I kept thinking about that pig face and everything like that. And it wasn't until like a few years later, I remembered watching it. And then I really got into it. But I remember that just kind of messing with me a little bit. Because it's it, like there's so many disgusting moments in the movie where it is kind of just kind of fun. And like, like I said, there's a lot of meandering around where it's just silliness. But when the horror actually gets into it, it really is kind of gross which I love, you know, I think that, you know, that's another thing the film has going for it is that, you know, it's kind of this gnarly special effects. They're doing a lot with not very much at all here. And I think a lot of it is kind of, is really effective and it is kind of really grimy and quite nasty. You know, there's a moment, it reminds me, this is a weird connection, but she's holding her eyeballs kind of like in her, in her, her middle fingers. And it reminds me yeah. of Pan's Labyrinth. Oh yeah. <laughs> she's like rocking back and forth and her eyeballs are on her hands and I'm like oh my god that's so gross I, I, eye torture really does me in like anything with belly buttons and eyes I can't fucking do are those, are those your buttons? <laughs> yeah that's my buttons like I remember almost I, I think the very first couple of times I watched Zombie when you know Maria is being pulled close to the, the, the wood splinters and it just honestly that scene feels like it's 30 minutes long and the like the intrusion in, in when the eye like pops and stuff like that. I, I feel honestly it all stems back from my grandfather was basically digging something, a hole. Basically there was an animal that was buried and it was like freshly buried. And he hit the eyeball and it popped and there was this really awful smell. And I think that's kind of where it stems from. Right. I always cringe when there's eyeballs, man. I always, I love it, but I always cringe. That's um, like me with I'm teeth a... and fingernails. That's so weird. I was just about to say, those are my two as well. Teeth and fingernails. Yeah, teeth uh, and fingernails yeah. is a big thing for people. That that doesn't bother me, but man, eyeballs and belly buttons. Luckily, there's not a lot of belly button horror, but if there is, I'll definitely be <laughs> So yeah, after a couple more deaths, this house is reopened in 1981, picked up by Dr. Herman Royce, who then also dies under suspicious circumstances. <laughs> I mean, it's a wonder that anyone's taken on at this point, but James, his nephew, the estate defaults to him. This whole thing is insane, but just before we get to uh, kind of meeting James and getting acquainted with what his plans are going to be for the place, you've got these two sanitarium staff 
talking about the Hoffman case and all this, uh, one of which is Sherry. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're going inside, and then uh, she disappears off into a side room, and she's compelled to hang herself by an, at this point, unseen kind of like spectral mouth breather. Yeah, you know that she's uh, kind of preoccupied with the Hoffman case because she has a massive folder with Hoffman written on it in giant letters that she's holding just too high in frame, just high enough that we can see that it's a Hoffman file. But she's not long for this world. At this point, this is minimum the third death of a character that is introduced like they're going to be a main character and then they just die. I notice she's compelled to remove her clothes by the mouth-breathing guy. Have you guys practiced the breathing yet? I don't want to do it on the podcast uh, because people (laughs) listen to this in headphones. (laughs) I think that's I think that's the one thing that really comes comes through with uh, with people remembering is the basically it just sounds like a breathing exercise for pregnant women. But uh, yeah, that's that's something that always like every time you hear it, it just cracks me up. It's not scary at all, and there and it's really like there's so many elements to to this movie that I I you know because making a horror comedy, how much were they trying to make horror versus actual comedy? Because I, I've seen some movies that are very good at balancing both. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, even like something as silly as Freddy versus Jason, they really tried to make those certain scenarios scary and then have the comedy added. Also, Ronnie Yu has a has a movie from like 83 called The Trail. Um, it's never hardly seen the light of day. But again, it's the elements of horror are so good and it really is scary. And then the comedy happens and then you laugh and then the horror starts to happen and then you kind of tense up a bit. So I can see elements of Boarding House of them really trying to do that. But I think we laugh so much at the movie that we really don't look at the horror other than the gore, really. Uh, You know, because, you know, again, with the breathing, that might be scary. But I think I've been laughing at the credits being typed up and read for so long that I'm already (laughs) in a mood to where I'm not finding anything scary at all. Yeah, um, uh-huh. I hear that. That, that. That's just me, though. But I, I mean, maybe watching this in the theater or at home in 1982, it would be a little bit different because we're so desensitized now. We don't like watch things and find them scary. It's very rare that we watch one of these movies. Only a very few films, I think, can hold up on its scares, uh, like Halloween or The Texas Chainsaw Massacre come to mind. But for the most mm-hmm. part, you know, I don't watch a Friday the 13th film and feel any tension. I just watch it for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Boarding House at this point. Yeah, I feel that any horror that they're trying to inject into Boarding House, certainly in these, this kind of first scene here, is really undercut by the gloved hand doing the weird magician's fingers. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk at this point about Jim, the character and the performance here? Yes. Okay. Yeah. My question broadly, I guess, is to what extent do you think we're supposed to find Jim a likable character? He's creepy. He's always he's always weird. It seems like even when he's, you know, doing the voiceover for uh, the boarding house when he was like, I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen the film, but it's something really creepy along the lines of like, oh, I'll get girls to come in the house like a hundred dollars a week. Mm-hmm. I'll pay them. But just yeah. really like he's just a very sleazy slimy guy like that's what he that's what he feels like and there's also that scene where he's like in his underwear on his like desk with his socks and water then he he puts his socks on after they're wet and it's like man what kind of fucking psycho is this (laughs) classic sign yeah i don't think you could take anybody seriously that did that 
You know, even like something like charismatic, like The Rock. If The Rock was sitting in his underwear with his socks and water, would that be likable? I don't think so. Yeah, no, this is this is what I can get away from because obviously when you like, I think our first proper encounter with him is when you hear him in voiceover talking about his plans for the house. And you're right. I mean, like you're remembering it exactly right, Brad. I mean, it's it's pretty creepy and pretty odious. Um, he's talking about it being like a bachelor's paradise. He's advertising for um, people between the ages of eighteen and twenty five and all this kind of I'm thing. Looking for young girls the age of like eighteen and twenty four. I'll pay them a hundred. It's like, whoa, what are you doing? He he has an odd look to him as well, but he's always sweating. Yeah. Uh-huh. To what extent do we think that taking the character of Jim and John Wintergate, the man, I was wondering how much overlap you think there is between the character and the man. I, I kind of get the impression there's a fair amount. Uh, it's very close. I emailed John Wintergate probably about 15 years ago. Um, you know, like I said, I watched the film when I was younger and then I slowly became more and more obsessed with it as time went on. And, uh, as, as somebody that was young between the ages of like, I don't know when my parents got a computer and the internet was all around and a lot of these authors and directors and writers, they had their own little sites all the time. You know, it was a different time where they put out their information for people to contact them. Now no one does that because everybody's closed off because of solicitors and all the bogus emails and spam. And, you know, the, the fan base is a lot, lot larger than it used to be. Yeah. But I, I emailed. You can actually find John and Callisoo's information. Lightstorm Music and Books, I think it is, .com. And they have their information on there. They have all their music for free, all their writings for free. John is a very unique person. And, and a lot of the film with the aspect of spiritual stuff, uh, that mm-hmm. is coming from them for real. Like, that's something that they do believe. And when you go on their website, you'll see plenty of readings and books pertaining to all of that. So I, I really think that this is really a love letter for them to just kind of have fun. And that's really them. They're not acting. Yeah. Other than when they're screaming or, you know, doing some killer stuff. I think that's just them having fun. So I think a lot of their, uh, you know, for the role of Victoria, who's played by his wife, um, I think all of that is just them. I, no, no one's Jim or Hawk Adley, I think is another name. Oh, yeah, that he goes yeah. By. Hawk Adley. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah, yeah. None of that is true. It's all John Wintergate, 100%. But um, it, it's just, he's a really, really, really nice person. And, you know, I honestly, nothing to say bad about him whatsoever. And they only made this one movie. I think he did a bit part in like Terror on Tour at yeah. the time, but that's probably because they were associated with the names, which was the band that was in Terror on Tour, which is a real band from the UK. But for the most part, I mean, they only did this and then they basically live life, you know, and they're very uh, fun and free people. So. So speaking of Victoria, you've got, I think it's like maybe five or six of this kind of central kind of women who move into the house. Beyond uh, Victoria, who's obviously kind of like your female protagonist, and Cindy, who has a story of her own, I kind of feel like the rest of them are kind of largely kind of interchangeable. There's like Debbie, right? Debbie, the kind of stuffy Brit who arrives later than all the others. At least I think it's Brit. The accent's a little questionable. But yeah, like um, I think <laughs> they obviously... Yeah, no, I mean, it's literally... 
Victoria Kalasu invited her friends to make a movie over a weekend. Totally. <laughs> and yeah, it really yeah. is just kind of a, you know, more bodies, more fun. Maybe John liked all the women around him. Uh, his advert seems to work out perfectly for him because within one scene, his house is absolutely flocked with beautiful women uh, in various stages of undress. Yeah, and there's that yeah, amazing yeah. pie fight, you know? I, I just, um, yeah, it's got a lot going. There's also that, there's also, if I remember, he's in his underwear a lot in this movie. Very often, actually. He does something in the bedroom where he, like, has some types of exercise tool to where he, like, lays flat. Like, he puts his, like, I don't know what that is, like, a thing to stretch your limbs. But he's definitely in his underwear when he does it. And he's got this big gold, like, brass-looking bed right next to him. The house, like, the whole (laughs) entire bedroom is very, very cluttered from what I can remember. Um, (laughs) It's even, like, to the point where he's, like, fiddling with the parts. And it's, like... He's really having trouble. Like they didn't rehearse this or anything. He just decided to do it. <laughs> but um, just a really like. But that, that's that's what I like about the film because it's very organic and and natural. Yeah. Like it's not wow. well rehearsed. They obviously didn't do twenty table readings for this movie if they even did a table reading at all. You know, yeah. it literally is just them going. Let's do something here. Let let's film this real quick. You know, because I get to imagine like frantically. That's how John is on set. You know, like laughing, and it's like someone comes up with the idea, and he's like, "Oh, that's good. Let's film that. You know, let's do that. You know, let me take off my pants. Let me get in my underwear. We'll film it." You know, <laughs> that bedside apparatus that you're talking about. He um, uh, he does that postcoitally at least once in this film, potentially more. I can't remember actually if it's uh, if it's when he sleeps with Debbie or Victoria, but it's basically just kind of like in the postcoital cigarette moment, he just gets up, fine tunes the machine, climbs into it, and starts whirring back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's is that before or after she opens up the refrigerator and all the yogurt hits her in the face? <laughs> before. It, I thought it was after because he then showers her, doesn't he? He takes her into the shower oh, and cleans her off. Oh, that's yeah, right, yeah, that's he right. He puts her right. in the shower and there's a long. That's when the cat is killed. Oh God. Yeah, because yeah. she's grunting and screaming, and then it cuts to like I get, the movie's entirely too dark, but it looks like the cat's head is being beaten on a rock. It's been uh, hit with a hammer. And it's intercut between each scene. So we're getting fucking and then we get cat killing. And it's like, and it goes back to the shower, back to the cat, back to the shower. And it's like, why cut it this way? <laughs> you know, like, why not just have the sex scene in its entirety? You know, but anyways, yeah, the yogurt thing. And then she starts rubbing it all over her body. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, like, you know, that was enjoyable. But I guess that was part of the comedy that they were going for that was left into this serious horror film that they were originally, you know, <laughs> what they cut it down to. But that scene yeah. is, is very funny. And then it also gets really horrifying when the animals start to die. And then yeah, it's gifted to her later on, right? That's so. That's what it is. Oh, yeah. Like, like a few minutes later, she and then there's that scene where they're running on the train. Like all of a sudden, she runs out and then they're on train tracks out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I've got written down here. How fucking far has she run? <laughs> I know. It's like I don't even like. They're obviously in suburbia because of the the exterior shots of the house and also the shots from inside pointing to the street. They're obviously in a regular neighborhood. And she runs out, and then she looks like she's in the middle of fucking Chicago, running down train tracks. And, you know, he falls and tumbles, and he just is asking, what's going on? What's wrong, Victoria? What's wrong? You know, it's like, oh my god, all of this, like, what are we doing? But that's the whole, that's why the movie's so enjoyable, because it has ridiculous shit like that. 
Well, speaking of ridiculous shit, I don't want to blow by the fact that Jim's telekinetic as well. Oh, yeah. He has that scanner's look, you know, where he's, like, holding his breath, and it really looks like he's about to pop a blood vessel or, like, have a brain aneurysm or something like that. He really is, like, so into it. His look really does work for the movie when he's doing that, but there's a lot of close-ups of his face. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like a very, very feverish close-ups of his face. I just want to know what the temperature was in that house, because he's very, very (laughs) sweaty. I wish they turned on the air for people, man. It seems like a very humid set. Definitely. We've talked about it a little bit in a couple instances here already, but like, yeah, showers are a place to stay away from in the film, I think. We've talked about where the, the kitten gets murdered, Pumpkin, who, by the way, was a fucking goner from the first time that I clapped eyes on him. (laughs) um i was i was certain but also and you did touch on this uh the pig transformation which is also uh, preceded by her getting into the shower and then understandably panicking because the walls are bleeding now see when she gets in there and the wall starts bleeding and then she screams and gets out of the shower and then she has momentarily transformed into a pig or at least a human with a pig face i love how unbelievably one unexpected and two completely disorientating that is because the choices feel almost arbitrary because they happen the way they do doesn't she also pull a tampon out of her mouth it was that or it's like a, a bloody napkin one again i haven't seen the film in a few years but i do remember that and i don't know if it's a tampon or a napkin either way it's weird Brad. <laughs> you're right it really she has no reason to have either in her mouth yeah there's no, there's no iteration of this that's normal correct yes. um we haven't really mentioned the fact that john wintergate essentially does double duty in this film he plays a secondary character for some reason. I don't really know what the purpose of the gardener character is, apart from being a red herring. Yeah. Uh, but that's a choice. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't I don't have an answer for that. I maybe that's something I should ask him because it's not like they would run short on you know any actors or anything because. This has quite the cast in general. There's a, there's a there's a lot of people. I mean, there's the band as also that it obviously is. I think it's old footage from their concert or something. I have no idea. And then of course the lawyer, which is John Wintergate's real lawyer, by the way, yep. which is which is funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't know. It's it's a very odd that he plays the gardener as well because it's not it's not a convincing costume. No, no, not at all. That just follows suit with the rest of the movie, I guess. Sure, sure. I think that, and I would be curious about to what extent this is tackled more in the director's cut. But in the middle of all this, we are kind of main story here, which is obviously the girls in this house being haunted by or kind of being terrorized by this entity that we'll know more about as it goes on. But um, we have this entire story. Cindy, who lives in the house, being hunted down by her boyfriend? Yeah, her, her uh, wannabe fiancé. Yeah, I think his name's Richard, um, who hires a private detective who shows up outside under the alias Harris, gets in, finds out all this information, and then very abruptly her would-be fiancé shows up. And it feels like this is kind of picked up and explored kind of briefly, but in a way that's like just enough to engage, but not enough to really feel like it's resolved. Yeah, that's the, that's the character we have no idea what happens to him, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I, I don't think that there's any payoff at all there. You, you see them kind of arguing a little bit, but you don't know where it ends up. Yeah, um, I'm not recalling so much even in the two hour and 38 mi- minute version if they indulge in any of that. But yeah, no, that's a mystery of what happens. What, what's his name? Serves an R, right? Richard. I think it's Richard. Yeah, we, we don't find out what happens to him. We don't talk about that. I think he only <laughs> exists to then add an extra dimension to the what happened to Cindy story when she goes missing later on. 
Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that way it's, it's like, oh yeah, there's um like she left a note saying that she'd taken up with him and stuff. I remember that. Yeah. That could be it. Like I said, that doesn't change the story at all for Boarding House. It has its own <laughs> thing going. Boarding House doesn't have the time to care about little characters like Richard. No, 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 no. It's it's. <laughs> spent wheeling wildly from mad thing to mad thing and weirdly you talked earlier about the way that it's edited it's edited very peculiarly because scenes fade to black while characters are in the middle of what sound like incredibly important exposition yeah and i honestly i think that's a big part of obi ray is one of the editors which is obviously just john wintergate in the film <laughs> but uh yeah I, I mean honestly i think the editing comes into part because they really didn't know what the fuck they were doing if they were cutting an hour out of this movie making a um horror movie out of a horror comedy you know when that wasn't their original intention have you ever guys seen splatter university yeah Originally, that movie's cut to be a serious horror film. There's no comedy at all. But then it didn't screen very well. So uh, the director who I'm blanking on, he created a version that was funny from without doing many reshoots at all, um, which I think is easier to do. But I, I mean, this movie's just so jumbled because who knows how many times they passed on this movie, cutting it and cutting it, trying to make it more serious. So, I mean, it is very odd, but it, it really does feel it, it's, um, you know, that people took turns editing the movie. You know, it's easy to cut and snip things, but it's hard to make something coherent and good as an editor, you know. Yeah, there's a few interesting or kind of confounding examples of that. Because like you say, Andy, there's a lot of the time where it fades when people are kind of obviously having what appear to be conversations that would be intrinsic to the plot. But also there's a point where I think it's Debbie. Well, it would be Debbie, yeah, is in a jacuzzi and she's approached by the gardener who's wielding a kind of chainsaw hedge trimmer thing. And she kind of stares him down in a way that looks like something's about to happen and then it just cuts straight to something else. It almost makes sense, like you're saying, Brad, about people take, almost taking turns editing this film because it feels like there is this kind of unspoken disagreement about which of the B stories are important. Yeah, and, and honestly, a lot of those uh, scenes, I, the jacuzzi one in particular, I do remember continuing in the longer version. But it's just it was just too much comedy is added. And John Wintergate's idea of comedy necessarily isn't very funny. Um, <laughs> I would say, and it's, I'm not saying that as a, anything derogatory. It's just that. With horror comedies, you know, we have stuff like, you know, I think one of the more too popular films are Student Bodies and Scary Movie, where they they parody stuff. When Boarding House was being made, they weren't doing parodies of anything. They were literally trying to make a comedy blended with horror. Because even though all these horror comedies that we get, they're literally derived from movies existing, like Shaun of the Dead with zombie movies, you know, Student Bodies, the slasher films, you know, Scary Movie, obviously taking on all horror films made, you know, between like the late 90s and 2000s with its sequels. You know, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, Rednecks in the Woods, you know, all these, all these things, the, the tropes that they follow. Boarding House didn't do that. They literally are trying to make quote-unquote comedy by genuine jokes and just silly and weird stuff. Throwing yeah. yogurt on somebody is funny. Yeah, There's actually no meaning behind it. That's just what they do. And that scene continues and she rubs it in her skin. And it's like, I think it's one of those you had to be there to laugh at it type stories. 
You know, it's like having your friend tell you a story about how yogurt was thrown on him. Might be funny to him in the moment, but it's not really funny to us to hear about it. Yeah, beyond yogurt, the comedy really just seems to be people having their pants pulled down and being pushed in swimming pools. Yeah, it really is very, like, immature just stuff that it's almost like they were playing pranks on each other on set rather than a story behind the comedy. It, it really is just very generic and random. And it, it makes the movie more inconsistent, which they cut out, which creates even a more inconsistency. So you, people are like, oh, we're going to watch this two-hour and 38-minute version of Boarding House. All my questions will be answered. Uh, no, you actually have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's just it's just as weird and, and wacky. You know, obviously some scenes pan out and you're like, oh, that's what they originally cut. That was probably a good idea, you know, uh, that type of thing. But anyways, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, either or, both versions are fun. It's just if you have close to three hours to spare on Boarding House, then by all means, go ahead. I mean, you could spend a whole day on that disc. So if you want to dedicate a whole boarding house day, you know, that could be national. We could we could do it. <laughs> no, I'm more than happy. What to better do that. time what better time than now? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not like we don't have the time, that's for sure. Shit, I may watch it again just because I can. I, I, I can feel you talking yourself into it as this goes on. I mean, this is typically what happens when I when I do a podcast or anything. I talk about the movie and I'm like, I just need to watch it again. That's what needs to happen. You know, a, a real professional person would watch the movie uh, beforehand, um, but not me. <laughs> well, you're holding your own very well here. We've had people come on who haven't watched the film in advance, and uh, they have, it they, shows. Yeah, they've no idea where they're going. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, we've had people totally marooned. So, no, uh, you're doing fine on that score. The way this kind of pulls together towards the end at the party, I think for one thing, I, I do think it's funny the way that Cindy, who has been this intrinsic member of their group for this entire time, mysteriously disappears and they dwell on that for no time at all, um, have a food fight and then start getting ready for the party. They never dwell um, on anything much. Like, people are getting injured with incredible regularity in this house. Like, it's a sexy death <laughs> trap, right? People are getting impaled on stuff, they're getting their hands slashed open. Danger looks around every corner, but nobody cares. Like, if somebody's hurt, it's never mentioned again. It's never brought up. Their, their well-being is never once queried. My favourite instance of this is uh, when one of them, I want to say that it's Pam, but, you know, she stabs herself in the hand with an ice pick. And then later on, one of the girls is sitting outside with Jim, and the way that that's left is, oh, uh, it's okay, all of her fingers worked, I checked them. <laughs> But yeah, um, I kind of feel like every, like every kind of event and every plot beat in this arrives with no introduction and leaves with no analysis or aftermath, you know? You know, and there's also the, you know, like you were saying, with complete disregard of actually anything being talked about until the final moments of the movie when it's uncovered who this breather is and people, you know, obviously dying and trying to defend themselves. It's really all like fear is disregarded in the film. And it's just, it's not even talked about. They just disregard everything. It's its kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. What do we think about the ending then? I must admit, I didn't see it coming that Debbie was going to be the breather, as I like the fact that this is what we've come to call them. Her name's been Becky till this point. She's not unmasked as Debbie Hoffman until towards the end. But yeah, up until this point, she's just been a terrible actress with a terrible English accent. Pretty much. And it's honestly one of those things where um, I think they were making the movie and they just kind of forgot where the movie <laughs> is going. And it's like, oh, we kind of need this wraparound story. Who can be this person? Who could be the breather? Oh, yeah, you. We'll just change you to the daughter. 
you know, but I mean, there is that thing in the beginning that, you know, the child survived. But why? Why is Debbie Hoffman there? Why, why is she luring the people <laughs> in to kill them in this so-called boarding house? Why is Jim, was he in it on from the beginning? Why, why pick Jim? You know, I want a backstory. They do say they do have a sequel to Boarding House written. By God, I want to read it. Oh, oh yes, yeah. absolutely. I, I, I think it actually, if, if you go back and I believe it's on Splathouse's show. I haven't listened to it since it originally went on. But yeah, I think it's like their very first episode. They do mention that there's backstory to the movie, which my question is, if you're making this movie... If you're making a boarding house and you make a two hour and 30 minute version of this movie, why would you think ahead that you're going to make a sequel to this? Like, <laughs> you know, we're going to make another movie or it was one of those things where they just filled in the cracks. I don't know, but it's just, it really kind of blows my mind. It's very obviously left open for a sequel, the way that it's settled up. Because obviously after the combined efforts of uh, Jim and Victoria defeat Debbie, we get the same kind of words on the screen case file voiceover thing that we get at the start that basically says that uh, Victoria is now a successful singer, James is working full-time as a programmer, the house burned down that night, and Debbie's body has never been found. So obviously, like, was this originally conceived? Well, it must have been originally conceived to have a sequel. I guess. Like, I feel because it is such a genuine movie and do-it-yourself and it is so organically grown I think they were making this up as they were going along, even in the original production of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, having the idea of making another one. That's that's what it feels like. I could be wrong, but I'm going to go ahead with my instinct and say I'm right. Because I, I think a lot of these things are conceived this way. A lot of sequels are conceived because, I mean, when you write a script... You don't write it and then that's it. Oh, I'm done. No, you revise it. You add things along. You go back and you reread it. And you see these little things open up. It's what TV shows do. They, they, they go on these little tangents of things that are in the script. Nothing is just automatically written. Like somebody doesn't write 10 seasons of a TV show sitting down. No, they, they write the first episode and they write the season and then things open up. And honestly, and it's during the making, during what fans want, during all that stuff, things change. And I honestly think, uh, you know, obviously this is different from a TV show, but I think having fun and making this movie in probably the comfort of their own home during this time, you know, they were coming up with the ideas of what this could be, you know, thinking that they're going to make movies for the rest of their lives. Who knows? But I, I really think a lot of that stuff was probably conceived right then after Um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where this came from. I'm going to go ahead on another whim and say it's probably not going to make a whole lot of sense. It's just probably going to add more holes to the plot. (laughs) But (laughs) maybe it will answer those things. It's it's almost like a, a compare it to what Saw does. I think Saw creates these stories, has these plot holes, and then goes back in and fills the plot holes with another story. It, mm-hmm. just, it just keeps on going down the rabbit hole. It's where you're telling me this John Kramer guy set up all these traps and all these things that if one person, like, let's just say one person just killed themselves in the middle of it. It doesn't continue <laughs> the next person. It would just stop. Like, he's really basing all of this hope that all these people try to achieve their goals, 
Try to uncover all of this stuff and go forward. What if they um, didn't? <laughs> I'm one of the biggest Saw franchise fans out there, and I am the first to admit, as the plan gets increasingly more labyrinthine as those films go on, the master plan of it places so much stock in correctly predicting what everyone will do in very high-pressure situations. Right, and, and, and honestly, I, I think, you know, even when these scripts are conceived, because I think the first, like, few saw films like take place over what like a, a three day or a week period right so it's not like years yeah. of this stuff going on it's literally in the same week you know again that could be organic too but it's like they're in the making of it they're like oh that this little story of this person we can do this now and i honestly that's probably where we're going on this way way tangent of boarding house two predictions but I believe that's probably where all that was conceived from. It's just having fun. Yeah, but everybody hopes that a film that they've made does well, even if, you know, in your heart of hearts it might be a bit of a stinker. You hope that it's going to kind of resonate and do better than your expectation. And I think sometimes, look at films that we've covered before, Mitch, like uh, Demon Wind or Death Spa, films that kind of end on an open ending. I know there was some talk of a Death Spa sequel a long time ago, but, uh, yeah, I mean, these films were made to have open endings as well, I think, and the off chance that they did better than they ultimately were received. I didn't even think about that. I think that's a good point that, you know, some of these films hoped for franchises and sequels. That's probably what they were trying to go for. Because, like I said, I mean, they were musicians. They settled down, basically. They had a family. They were trying to think of other means to make money. So they started making a movie. And again, this is the prime time to do all of this stuff in the early 80s. I mean, this was made in 81, they they filmed it, and then it was, I think, uh, really released theatrically in 82, and then probably went to video like 82, 83. I think Paragon <laughs> released it on VHS. But anyways, so I, I think also that is the prime time, because a lot of sequels, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking about Friday the 13th was made, what, in 80? And then its sequel came out like in 81, 82, right? right? Somewhere around there. Yeah, right. You know, a lot of these things were being open and I think that's a good point. Yeah. They were probably just hoping for, you know, a sequel to be made afterwards or they conceived the sequel years later when it became a cult favorite because that happens too. Mm -hmm. Like Boondock Saints yeah. or some crazy shit like that. Oh, people like yeah. my movie? Let me do a sequel. Like writing aspirationally almost in that way. Yeah. Even things like Blood Feast getting a sequel like fucking 50 years later yeah yeah you know it's just one of the i think it's you know a cash grab on on their parts because there's even like you know there's like five or six like corpse grinder sequels that were made you know yeah like, i mean corpse grinders in the 70s i don't mean to keep on bringing up vinegar syndrome movies that's just a coincidence <laughs> sure uh -huh. <laughs> i'm mentioning demon wind as well <laughs> yeah there you go if the plan was to make this a horror comedy by the way I have to be honest it worked on multiple levels for me because I laughed a lot during this I screamed and clapped when he made the soap fly around in the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> and honestly some of that stuff looks pretty good I think it's just because probably you can't see any of the strings or wires uh, with how yeah. you know being shot on video it's still it's still fun but yeah you know, that's the thing is I think it's a fun party movie to watch with people because you're going to get a reaction no one no, no, no one's gonna sit in silence in this movie also there's that dream sequence that is so dark 
that you can take that opportunity to nip to the toilet, you can go and get new beers out the fridge. I, I didn't have a fucking clue what was going on during that whole sequence. I, I, I looked up the Wikipedia plot synopsis to get guidance on that, and she said it was a, a nightmare sequence where she was chased through the house by a monster, and I was like, you could have told me literally anything, and I would have believed you. <laughs> Andy, any concluding comments following your first watch of Boarding House? Like I say, I'm obsessed now. I've ordered that super-duper double-disc pack. I will watch it in its entirety. I will watch every second of every feature. Uh, I have to thank you, Brad. Like I say, this was a first viewing for me, which on this show is actually quite rare. I love this. I absolutely loved it. I also love shot and video horror, and this, to me, this is like catnip to me, and I'm amazed that I haven't seen it before. And uh, yeah, I loved it. I laughed my ass off the whole way through it. It's incredibly charming in a way that it shouldn't be, because everyone in it's quite obnoxious. <laughs> that is true, yes. I would say I'm not as like rabidly effusive about it as you are, Andy, I wouldn't say, but I did have a really good time with this. Brad, this kind of thing, shot and video stuff from this era, is a total kind of other world to me, and I've never really had a sensible entryway into it until now, and I think that this does feel like a good way to start. A lot of what we talk about on this show, from my point of view, is that, because Andy's seen a lot of stuff, I have seen less. I'm a bit of a latecomer to horror, and I'm kind of making ground up now. So whenever subgenres or subcultures of films and stuff like that present themselves, I just have to latch on to the things that kind of pique my curiosity and just disappear down rabbit holes. And I could see myself doing that with stuff like this. I agree, I think there's a lot of charm to this. I think it does a lot with very little. I laughed a lot as well, but uh, yeah, no, I had, a really, I had a really great time with this. I thought, And it's a great pick for this show. I think that our listeners are really going to enjoy it as well. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, with going down the shot on video rabbit hole, one thing it did is it stopped towards the mid-90s um they stopped doing it there are some savelle makers that still do it but it's mainly just you know kind of aesthetic thing but i mean there are some really kind of i i won't be afraid to use the term revolutionary <laughs> films uh in the shot on video world i think boarding house is one of them another one that i know that i spoke to you guys about was blonde death we were looking at doing that one as well, but it was um, very difficult to get hold of here. Blonde Death is the best shot on video movie. It's not even horror, it's a drama. If John Waters made a shot on video movie, Blonde Death would have been it. You know, it is, it is, <laughs> okay. it is really, really bizarre, and it's so good. And it's, just, and it's just really wild. And it was actually partially filmed in Disneyland. They snuck a camera in there. It's kind of wild what they go to do at Disneyland. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really good movie. It's very weird. Um, a lot of upsetting and crazy things in that movie. But uh, it really, it's just probably transgressive cinema at its best. Awesome. Cool. Brad, before we finish up, anything you want to let us know about yourself, about Vinegar Syndrome, what's going on right now? Obviously, we're kind of living in uncertain times, but um, uh, yeah, anything anything you want to take a second to talk about? Um, yeah, I mean, we have our uh, we have our halfway to Black Friday sale uh, coming up in May. Um, you know, we announced uh, uh, Rad, so we have Rad uh, coming out. So it's been the first time it's ever been on anything but VHS. And I wasn't sure if it was on Laserdisc, but it doesn't really matter. So we have Rad coming out. Uh, we recently have the, you know, the Gialli set. We have Dolly Dearest. And then we announced also Hattie Hurst, which is another of the halfway to Black Friday titles we announced. And we have a couple secret titles that are going to be really, really great. Um, so lots of cool stuff. Huge sale coming up. So save up. Well, I'll, I'll be taking full advantage of that sale, Brad. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's great for uh, you know anybody international because it saves you a lot of money. Brad, where can people get you on social media? Uh, I mainly just use Twitter, so Brad F Henderson, pretty much it. I tweet usually about movies or my dogs. What more sure. do you need? <laughs> Brad, thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, man, this was like I say, this was this was amazing, a total revelation to me, and I'm so glad that it's now on my radar. And I am now going to do what you've done and subject all my friends to watching this. So much. I had an absolute blast with that. This is very much up my street. Has it opened your eyes? I, I mean, you certainly seem to be engaged with the world of short and video horror. I'm curious. I'm curious. I'll say that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The world is my oyster for what is apparently a very short window of time in the 80s. But yes, I'm very interested. <laughs> um, big thank you to Vinegar Syndrome's Brad Henderson for joining us tonight to talk Boarding House. I learned a lot. I love conversations like that, actually. I mean, we do spend, obviously, regular listeners to the show will know that we do spend a lot of time talking shit about stuff while I talk about dicks and you put your head in your hands at stuff I've said. Um, but occasionally, it is nice to have a guest come on with that real encyclopedic knowledge of a subject and just mm-hmm. completely yeah, lead yeah. the discussion I, I'm i all for that yeah I think that it's sometimes nice to be able to just kind of line something up for someone and just sit back and learn things like I like the opportunity to do that it's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing this one of the many reasons why yeah it can't all be dicks Mitch ain't it the truth honestly yeah a good motto for life in general <laughs> So I guess that's it for another one, but we will be back on Monday with Minisode 99, incidentally. Holy shit. Oh, man. Holy shit is right. If you want to get in touch with us between now and then, of course, there's loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can email Scenes at gmail.com. Yep, and you can check out our website, strongviolentpod.com, where you can find a non-exhaustive list of podcast providers where you can listen to us. You can also find links to our T public page, which will be getting updated again with some new designs in the coming days. And you can check out live dates as and when they're available, but they're not right now. They certainly are not. And even if they were, you shouldn't go. No, no, no. And we won't be there either. <laughs> we are back on Monday for Minisode 99. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it's better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. 